our gospel lesson. This is from John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he walked along, Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, listen to what he did. Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Then he went and washed and came back, and the man was able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is that not the the man who used to sit there and beg? And, And some were saying, Yes, it's he. But others were saying, No, it's just someone who looks like him. But they kept asking, Then how were your eyes opened? The man said, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it onto my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And then I went and washed and received my sight. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. may be seated. And now our children, K through second graders, are invited to go with Pastor Renee for children's worship. So now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a question for us this morning. Say someone were dressed up in a chicken suit. And they came marching out this side door by the organ and they finagled their way through the orchestra and they stood right here, right where Eliza is. And they did a funky chicken dance. They shook their arms, waved their tail feathers. Like say Fran White, for instance, who loves to dress up. Um, I mean, so many videos on Facebook of all of her impersonations. Say, Fran, why? We're dressed in a chicken suit. Came front and center, did a little chicken dance. And then she finagled her way out. And, and we are in the middle of worship. We are singing beautiful music. How many of you all would notice Fran White in the chicken costume up here? Did you notice her? Now, what the orchestra, you all have heard this, but... I asked them this morning, I said, okay, what if you all were really focused on your music? And Fran came through here. Would you notice the chicken suit right in front of you? Debbie says yes. David says yes. What about y'all in the back? No. Okay. Bruce, what do you think? 
<laughs> so in 2014, National Geographic conducted an experiment to help answer the scenario of how many of us would notice something so obvious happening right before our eyes if we were paying attention to something else. And so they asked participants in this experiment to watch a video of people playing double dutch jump rope. Now there were people wearing different colored shirts, green, yellow, red, and purple, and they were jumping across the ropes. And the participants were asked to count the number of times that people on the green team jumped over the rope. Now keep in mind, these were very experienced jump ropers, and participants would need to watch this video closely to to count the correct number of jumps. And 40% of them got the correct answer 38 times. But then they were asked a second question because the experimenters said, did you notice anything else happening during that double dutch jump rope game? Because in the middle of the 38 jumps, a person who was not Fran White, dressed in a giant chicken costume, walks into the middle of the camera frame, in the middle of all the jumping ropes. This person does a funky chicken dance, and then they walk off the screen. And nearly half of the people in this experiment completely missed the crazy chicken dance, even though they were staring right at it. Now, some of them refuted. They said, you showed me a different video. My video did not have that chicken in it. They were convinced. Finally, there was one more change. The wall behind the jump ropers began as a bright blue, and then it slowly changed over the course of this 30-second video to be a bright red color at the end. And almost every single person missed this significant change, even though it was happening right in front of them. There's a term for what this is called. It's inattentional blindness. And it explains why people typically do not consciously perceive aspects of their world that fall outside of the focus of their attention. Now, these things can be dramatic enough that 90% of us are convinced that we would never miss something as obvious as a chicken dancing in front of us. But in reality, most of us do. It's why we can be driving a direction we go every single day, and then one day we say, was that always there? Do I drive past that every day? Because I've never noticed it before. One of the original researchers, Daniel Simon, says this form of invisibility depends not on the limits of the eye, but the limits of the mind. We consciously see only a small subset of our visual world, and when our attention is focused on one thing, we fail to notice other unexpected things all around us, including those we might actually want to see. Now, today's text in John 9 is all about what we see and what or who we are actually missing. In fact, words like blindness, sight, seeing, and so forth crop up 24 different times in this whole 41-verse story. I only read the first several verses. 
Now, in this story we've just heard, Jesus spits in some dirt, rubs it around, and the eyes of a man who was born blind tells him to go wash his eyes, and suddenly this man is able to see. I loved when this text popped up on the lectionary as our gospel reading for this season of embodiment at Highland, because that doesn't get much more embodied than spitting in the mud and rubbing it in somebody's eyes. And there was a piece of me that thought, how cool would it be if I could bring a bucket of dirt to church and we could just pass it around today, let people spit up in it, and then we'll pick a volunteer. Um, Paul Whiteley, you know, we could rub it in your eyes and see what happens. Um, But I decided against that. I I didn't think that would go over very well. It's a fascinating story, though, isn't it? And I'm sure we've all heard sermons preached about Jesus healing this man and restoring his sight, and that's a sermon worth preaching. But the sermon I want to preach today is about what happens next. Because if you keep reading in the story for over 30 verses following this man's healing, the focus seems to be on the community around him and their response to this man. Because time and time again, they just don't get it. They can't see what has happened right before their very own eyes. So first, the disciples question Jesus about what has happened. And then the community starts to question one another. Then the Pharisees question the man. Then the Pharisees start to question one another. Then the Pharisees question the man's parents because they think maybe the parents have the real scoop on what's going on here. Then the Pharisees question the man again. And finally, the Pharisees question Jesus. Story after story is about the various people who just can't see how this healing possibly could have happened. Which leads me to believe that this is not only a story about a man who was born blind and can now see. It's a story about those of us who think we can see so clearly And we have no idea how blind we actually are. We are completely missing the chicken that's right in front of us sometimes. To me, one of the greatest tragedies of this text is that the community around this man can't even see him for who he truly is. They don't recognize him. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar begin to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some were saying it is, and others were saying, no, it's just someone who looks like him. Yet the man kept saying, yes, it's me, I'm here. They couldn't see him. Deborah Capp, who's a professor at McCormick Theological Seminary, says this is so odd because this man had lived in their midst his entire life, His neighbors would have interacted with him, perhaps helped him to cross the street from time to time, or helped him to draw water from the well. They would have worshipped with him. Why do they fail to recognize him after he is healed? Is it because the only marker of his identity was his blindness? Has the fact that he was blind been the only thing that they could ever truly see about him? They don't even know the man's name. It's not mentioned anywhere in the text. 
And granted, it's actually a common practice for people who are marginalized throughout Scripture not to be given a name. That's why there are so many unnamed women throughout the Bible, too. But it's also true about people who are sick or disabled. Think about it. We don't know many of them by name, do we? We only know them by what is perceived to be wrong or different about them. For instance, we know them as the leper in Galilee, the paralytic at Capernaum, the man with the withered hand, the woman with the issue of blood, the man who is deaf and has a speech impediment in the region of the Decapolis, the woman with a spirit of infirmity, the epileptic son near the town of Caesarea Philippi, and then in today's text, the man who was born blind. I wish our Bible captured these people and their stories and didn't define them only in terms of their sickness or disability. I wish they were seen as people with names and faces and stories, just like all of the other figures we know throughout scripture. But over time, perhaps without even realizing it, we have put people into different categories of worthiness. Maybe like the people we read about in this text, we too have been blind and we haven't even known it. Frederick Buechner reminds us that if we are to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors with our imaginations as well as our eyes. That is to say, like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Love is the frame through which we see one another. Those of us who look through that frame at the world and at our state have been pretty brokenhearted and infuriated this week. It's been named already in prayers, the bill that passed in Frankfurt that could deny the LGBTQ youth in our state gender-affirming care. And the question I've kept asking myself is, why can't they see these precious children and youth who will be affected by this bill? Why can't they see the harm that this will do? A local pediatrician wrote in the Lexington Herald-Leader, children and adolescents in our state struggle with so many things, mental health, safety, hunger, education and health care, inequality, poverty, substance use and abuse. It is inconscionable that instead of spending time and energy to tackle any one of these major problems, the legislature has literally gone after our already marginalized children. But I wonder if any of them have ever met or spoken to these youth. I wonder if they have ever seen them. The pediatrician says, because I would tell the legislature that they are, without question, some of the bravest people I know. These are people that we know and love, people who are sitting among us, part of the family of God in this place. And so what I want to say to you is this morning is that we see you. We see your pain, we see your fear, 
And most of all, we see your belovedness. And you are not alone. I hope we will channel our anger into action on behalf of these children and youth we do see here at Highland who are beloved children of God. But at the same time, we also ought to ask ourselves, who are the people we don't see? Who are we missing? Where can't we see the chicken that's dancing right in front of us? My church back in Texas had a long-standing relationship with a residential children's home in Beirut, Lebanon, where children stayed who were refugees from all across the Middle East. They would come there to live and go to school and grow up. It was a beautiful safe haven of peace and love in the midst of some really horrific situations. And so each summer, we would send a small group from our church to Lebanon to partner with them in offering summer camp activities for children to give their teachers and leaders who worked with them all year long a bit of a break. We had been out on an excursion one day to go hiking and swimming in the river, and I was sitting next to a little boy named Jad on our bumpy ride back home. At only five years old, Jad quickly made himself known as the troublemaker in our group. He was by far the most strong-willed and misbehaved child of them all. We quickly realized that someone always needed to have an extra eye on Jad because he had a little bit of a temper and it didn't take much to set that little kid off like a firecracker. And sure enough, not long into our bus ride that day, this proved to be the case. When Jad unsuccessfully tried to steal some candy from some of the other kids on the bus, let's just say there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jad glared at me when I asked him to please return the candy, literally growling at me. And his body just shook with anger. He kicked and screamed. He was so upset until finally he began to calm down. The bus was hot. There wasn't air conditioning. And some of the kids started falling asleep after a long day of playing outside in the sun. And I watched as Jad tried to fight off falling asleep because he was still angry at me. And I began to think to myself, please don't fight it. Just go to sleep. (laughs) so I can spend the rest of this drive in peace. Well, slowly his eyes began to close and fade. But as I watched him fall asleep that day, everything about Jad changed. His lips that had been growling at me earlier just formed into a peaceful little smile. His eyes that were glaring at me before closed, and I could see his beautiful long eyelashes. He fell asleep, and his head dropped into my lap, and he wrapped his arms around me, and then he was out. And in that moment, I realized that I held a little boy in my arms who had been forced to grow up far too quickly. I held in my arms an innocent five-year-old boy who had seen acts of violence and civil war that no human should ever have to witness, let alone such a young little child. 
I held in my arms a five-year-old who in his short life had already experienced unthinkable pain and trauma and loss. And in that moment, I knew, like in the core of my being, knew that I held in my arms the truest and realest expression of Christ that I had ever known. You can't walk away from an experience like that and not be changed somehow. And so today, every time I see a news report about the refugee crisis somewhere in the world, I can't help but to pause and to think of Jad. I wonder where he is and how he's doing. And I remember the profound way I experienced the presence of the Holy One in this once kicking and screaming angry little child who slept peacefully in my arms for over an hour in the back of a bus winding through the mountains of Lebanon one day. Barbara Brown Taylor says that encountering another human being is as close to God as I may ever get. It's the eye-to-eye thing, the person-to-person thing, which is where God's beloved has promised to show up. I would imagine that in a room this size, many, if not most, if not all of us, at one point or another, have experienced the tragedy of feeling unseen. Maybe by the world around us. Maybe within this very church. Maybe by someone we love. Friends, the story reminds us that there is a God who sees us wherever we are, that we are not alone. But I would also imagine that in a room this size, many, if not most, if not all of us, have been blind at one point or another to the needs of someone else, to the needs of another community in the world around us, too. To a person here in our church, we've been blind to a person we know and love. The story beckons us to live with eyes wide open. I love the artwork that Graham did for us this week. Graham, can you wave and show? This artwork beautifully reminds us and calls us to live with eyes wide open. Just like this man on the side of the road so that we might see people just as God sees us. Because, friends, that's where the beloved has promised to show up. May it be so. Amen.